Welcome to another episode of the Comfort Monk Podcast and the return of guest host Nick Black, who will be speaking with Mark Burgess of the band The Chameleons from the North Manchester area. Um, how did it go, Nick? It went great. Mark was awesome to talk to. Uh, he's always been a favorite of mine, and it was like talking to a legend. I had so many questions for him, and he was always happy to answer all of them. Um, a huge fan of the Chameleons, as well as Black Swan Lane. Uh, I got to talk to him about like the influence that his music has brought onto the entire genre of like post-punk, as well as like goth rock, and just how his relationships with other musicians at the time, and just what it was like to be in North Manchester during that time period. And I, I got some amazing answers from him. It was just really nice. And I felt bad because I knew it was close to 12 and past 12 on his time zone. But he it, he was always free to just continue to chat. It was great. Yeah, I was surprised when, uh, well, first, I, it's one of the few times we've had to look up uh, GMT as the time zone. <laughs> so it threw me off to begin with. We've only done that a few times, but. Uh, and I was like, God, yeah, forget that they're like, you know, it's hard to avoid it being like way later than you want over there. But I, yeah, apparently he's a night owl. He was down to chat. Yeah. I'm glad because it's, uh, yeah, from what I've heard, I haven't been able to hear it myself, but from what Eddie tells me, this episode is sick. So I'm looking forward to hearing it. Mm -hmm. um, thanks again for coming on, Nick. And this is our episode mm -hmm. with Mark Burgess of The Chameleons. I was uh, I was asked to compile um, lots of uh, family photographs and photographs of me as a child and um, photographs of my extended family and my parents and stuff for a, a book collaboration that I've just done with um, an artist here in in England called Iman Lazelle and uh, it's just come out the book actually but that was one of the photographs that um, I asked my mother if she could collect some photographs and she collected quite a few and that was amongst them and I just thought uh I recognize that little guy actually so uh he's my profile photograph now <laughs> nice that's very nice yeah cool so <clears throat> um tell me a little bit more about yourself you grew up in Manchester correct that's right yeah I grew up in North Manchester yeah nice. that's a very important distinction North Manchester okay yeah I was reading a lot about like things within that time period and um, yeah. a lot of influence for like music at that time. Um, it, it was, yeah, it was, it's mainly the, the youth culture was either or both, but it was usually um, either music or, or football hooliganism. It was one of those, one of those two or, or both of them. Um, but they kind of split off. Um, uh, in 1976 when when punk started to happen um they kind of split off and we and i, I kind of left the football terraces for the uh pogoing dance floors of the clash and um sex pistols and stuff like that so but it was it's, it's football and music is the uh the you know two uh foundation stones of uh culture in north manchester at that time and still is probably actually 
Mm-hmm. That's so cool. And yeah, so like I was reading about a lot of like things going on around that time. And um, I read up on what was called Thatcherism. Yeah. And that was starting to like make a really big boom at the time. And it that, was, Well, that started in 1978, really. But kind of, okay. yeah, I mean, that's when we, we really became, it really started in 1978 when Thatcher got elected. Uh, prime minister and was there for quite a considerable amount of time so it became thatcherism became the, the the term that was coined for that period yeah interesting but it's, it was the uh, thatcherism actually was the um the forerunner and it made inspiration of, of reaganomics mm-hmm. <laughs> that's one of the things i came across when i was like researching it yeah now, also like within that time period was that a time of like a lot more like punk music coming up or was that like kind of like towards the end and like leaning into more of like a post-punk scene and oh no i mean punk was pretty much over by the time thatcher got elected um, okay. punk really um in the way that i know it i mean i know it it, it, it did evolve in various ways but the punk that the i would define as punk um was between really between 1976 to maybe the end of 1977 Mm -hmm. after that it just became something much more watered down and um and um you know once the once the music establishment kind of got all of it it was all over yeah uh it was still interesting times i mean you had a lot of interesting music don't get me wrong um, you know, it's not a, in any way an indictment of what was, you know, post 77. It's not, it's just, um, that was just the way it was, you know, it, it kind of, it became much more palatable and, and, um, you know, the music, the music establishment kind of got hold of it. And, um, once they started charting and stuff like that, it was, it was all over really, but it was still an interesting time, you know? Yeah, that's really cool. And, it's, it's one of those things that I definitely want to read more about. Um, well, I mean, you, the, po- the immediate post-punk time was really good because um, you had a very strong independent thing kind of going on. There was a, the independent cartel, which handled distribution of a record. So you could actually make records yourselves and get them distributed, you know, very reasonably distributed across the country um, to places, to shops and things like that, and to places. So the cartel was very, very healthy. I know a lot of bands um, embraced the cartel when they first started. We didn't actually. We we uh, we ended up with a record label right from the get go, but um, which wasn't always the right thing to do. But um, I know I've got other friends and other bands who embraced the cartel and kind of made they did it their own way for quite a while. Um, and, and it was it was a very healthy scene then. You could do that. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but as a consequence, you know, you, you know, anything, it was a case of, case of anything goes when you're doing your records yourselves and you know that you're going to get them independently distributed, then there's no, uh, con- there's no control mechanisms in place as to what you can do or you can record. So the, the music from that period was extremely interesting um, in the way that it kind of evolved, you know, um, some of the weirdest, greatest, weirdest underground records you'll ever hear were made during that time because there were people could just do whatever they whatever they wanted, you know. 
Yeah. Now, yeah. when I um when I was reading up on your first label, that was <clears throat> when you released in the sh- in shreds. That label, um, what was that again? Was it under Epic? Yes, it was Epic. It was Epic because CBS ran it. Um, the label it was under Epic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we we signed really because of the person that signed us. We signed. Uh, she was her name was Annie Rosebury, and um, she'd already worked, I think, at Ireland, and with, she'd worked with quite a few people that we really, really liked, and and, help, and and helped bring them on. It just so happened that she moved to CBS, and we were the first band that she brought in there. But like so many, you know, like quite a lot of times, you know, a person can go into a new environment like that. Um, on the back of, of working with a very quite a progressive label and, and Ireland were a progressive label um, mm. into a new environment that's basically run by accountants. You're going to struggle. And we got kind of got caught up in that really. Yeah. It's a shame. So we only <laughs> stayed for, we only ended up doing one record with them, but um, it was an interesting time. You know, it, it meant we got to work with Steve Lillowhite, who was at the time, a producer that we were really, really into. Um, and it was a kind of a dream that we would actually get to make a record with him. So that was really one of the reasons why we ended up going with CBS was because they set up a meeting with Lilla White and they said, well, you know, you can be working with him. He wants to work with you, so you can be working with him within a couple of weeks. So that became a factor as well. But it wasn't really the right label for us. Yeah. And that's... When it comes to any creative field, that's usually how it goes. Like things get like wrapped up, but like knowing when to like make the time, like making that decision for yourself, that's always like interesting. Well, we only ever cared about the music. We didn't really care about any of the other stuff around the business. We only cared about the music and making the music and getting the music out. That's all we cared about. So we were very naive in that respect. And, um, you know, in retrospect, it would have been probably better if we'd had somebody with a bit of business savvy taking, looking out for us and, 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 uh, you know, brainstorming it all with us, but we were just so caught up in it. And we, oh, we were, we were just excited about making the music. Somebody putting us in a studio to make music with a, a world-class producer is a very exciting prospect. And that's all we were thinking of because, you know, we were only like, we were like 21, you know, so. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask. Like, how old were you at the time? Like, yeah, we were, ki- we, were, we were kids, we were babies. We were like 21 years old. So, um, you know, full of ourselves and whatnot. And we nobody could tell us anything, you know. So <laughs> we were like, we just went along with, 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 with in the flow of things. And I think, you know, it was good because we made a great record and we had to fight to get that record out. The label didn't like that record. Um, oh, man. They, uh, they didn't like it. And um, we had to really fight to get that out, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and then, like, after that, you signed to um, to Virgin Records to release Script on of a uh, Script of the Bridge and, like, well, we signed to an independent label actually, who who distributed through Virgin, um, and it was actually the, the the label when we when we after we after we'd done the Peel session, there was a lot of interest around the band, and uh, 
a journalist wrote to us and asked us if we'd provide a track for a compilation album that he was recording, that he was compiling at the time. And um, he was compiling it for an, an independent label called Static Records. And okay. so while we were in the process of trying to figure out who we were going to work for, record for, we gave him this track. We recorded this track, which was called Here Today, and we gave it to him. And the uh, compilation album was called Your Secret Safe With Us. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it came out, I think, around 1981. So it was actually the very first thing that Chameleons ever had out was on this label. So when it went pear-shaped with CBS, um, another guy in the band and a friend, a close friend of the band called James, they went to talk to this label about us maybe doing another record for them. Um, and we had a couple of meetings and then we decided to join this label um, called Static Records, and that's that's where Scripts of the Bridge was done. He but he distributed through Virgin. His distribution was Virgin. Um, okay. He was a, a great. He was a pal of Richard Branson, so um, you know he had that on his side. So we had, we did have like, you know, we the way we we, we reasoned was was we'd be we'd have an independent label that would let us uh, wouldn't try to influence our music, wouldn't try to tell us how to make the music. They would just let us make it, and would have decent distribution to Virgin who were a big deal, you know, at that time in music. So, um, it was our, you know, we, we, it seemed like a sensible way forward. Um, but we like, because we did, you know, we didn't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't know anything. All we, all we cared about was just making the music was getting the next record made and making music. That's all we cared about. We weren't cared about, we didn't care about any of the business things about making money or anything like that. We didn't give a fuck really. And that's beautiful. And like, it's nice because you continue to work with Static, correct? You even release what does anything mean? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, when I, because this was part of the naivety, really, was because, you know, we thought because we were on an indie label and the label was saying, well, you know, you just make the record and package it how you want and, you know, I'll give you the money for it and we'll split the profit. And it just became more complicated than that because Mm -hmm. after Scripts of the Bridge came out, the interest in us, um, began to grow exponentially and um, we started getting um, American companies because our, our deal with static excluded North America. Oh, wow. Um, we'd said, we'd said that um, the deal that we did with them would not, you know, that we, North America would be treated as a separate entity. Hmm. And um, so when scripts of the bridge came out, it was out over in America on import. And um, it did very well in in colleges and things, college towns and things. It did very well. And um, so then you had the heavyweights like MCA and people like that coming in, wanting the band. Mm -hmm. And um, the guy at Static Records signed us to MCA for six albums, but he didn't actually actually have a contract with us for that. Um, And he banked the money. (laughs) Jeez. Uh, which is about a hundred thousand dollars. He banked that, and uh, we were, you know, quite poor. And um, uh, but we wouldn't have known. I mean, we wouldn't have minded. But it was we started getting phone calls from MCA, um, giving us suggestions about the new sleeve they were going to use because mm-hmm. they didn't want Reggie's sleeve. Um, mm-hmm. They didn't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't understand the sleeve and they wanted something that was more like a psychedelic first sleeve. So we started getting sleeves of 
women in pencil skirts leading poodles across chessboards and things like that. <laughs> and, and like, we just, oh. we just was going like, no, you're not, no, you're not doing that. Yeah. And no. uh, during these conversations, it came out that they'd signed a six album deal for the band, but they didn't and paid a lot of money for that and didn't actually have any um, legal entitlement to the music. <laughs> oh, so man. that, that set the cat amongst the pigeons and it ended up uh, with a big argument. And in the end, we, we, the, uh, they, the compromise was that if we do another album with static, then we can just walk away. Yeah. And, um, and um, that's, so that's what we did. We recorded uh, what does anything mean basically. And uh, as a, as a, as a means of getting out of that, that situation. Interesting. Okay. And see, that's what I never knew. And at that time, you were probably, what, like 23, 20? Yeah. 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 I'm back on the dole. <laughs> <laughs> so back on the when dole. it comes to the album art, yeah. you guys, I'll always love the album art that you you have. And it's been the same artist every single time, correct? Um, his name is... Well, no, no I mean, it, it, the, the, the two guitar players were artistically trained. They'd been to art college. So, and they were quite talented. You know, they were both each talented in very di different ways, but they were very talented at that. Uh, David had actually worked as a professional graphic artist for a brief period after he left college. So they kind of knew their heads, where our heads around that, but we'd all kind of look at it we'd all come together and um you know like the sleeve notes were my thing and the front mm -hmm. cover was reg's thing and the way that it all fit together was dave's thing so we all had you know a direct input um in that so that when you got the album you the, the whole thing was created by the band it wasn't done um you know by some art department in a record label it was uh it was us that were doing that was doing it we I seem to recall that we, you know, we, it was a very big deal to us that we have complete control of every element of the creative process. And um, we would only work on that basis. You know, that was the only basis we, that we do it. That's really cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And with looking at that art, anytime I see it, it'll register. <laughs> I'm like, that's the chameleons. Like yeah, I mean, it didn't, you know, yeah, because it didn't, you know, you have to sort of, especially if you view it within the context of the time. I mean, if you if you take, uh, if you go out and get some records that were made around the same time and look at their sleeves, mm -hmm. right, and then look at ours, right, then ours definitely stands out as being something very different um, and unique, and that's what we were after, and that's what we were trying to do. And that second album in particular, the um, the one that had Perfume Garden on it, when you were talking about what does anything mean, basically, is my favourite, one of my favourite record sleeves ever by anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, now, is that one a painting or is it digital? It's a It was a, actually, a, it was done in um, pencil, coloured pencil originally. Wow, that's so cool. But um, obviously, as, as time's gone on, Reg has scanned it and, he smoothed, he smoothed out a lot of that. He doesn't actually like those originals. He, he doesn't. He's not happy with them. He's like he's horrified that uh, they're so popular <laughs> <laughs> because he's very self-critical about it. He actually redid them, um, you know, 
recently as limited edition prints. But he, cool. redid, he redid them, completely redid them. Yeah. But, um, but what I was trying to explain to him is that the original ones are the iconic ones because that's the ones that people identify with, with the music. So mm. um, it looks like somebody else has done them. <laughs> He's in the prints. I like them. I'm a big fan of his work. You know, I love what Reg does. But he, when he recreated them, it looks like somebody else has done them because obviously it was a long time after, a long time later. And he improved on things that he was critical about, but I don't think it has the same charm. So I stick with the original ones. <laughs> and it's really cool because I, I work full-time as a designer and I have always like looked back at like designs and album art from the past. Yeah. And yeah. like, just like I said, this is every single album that you all have put out definitely has like a different look and feel to anything else of that time. Yeah. Well, it's like I say in context, if you look at it around, it leaps out at you, but you also have to understand that when scripts of the bridge was made, um, you know, they were made for vinyl record sleeves. They weren't made for CD um, jewel cases because there was no CD when those records came out. CD didn't exist. Yeah. So um, that artwork was is meant to be seen like on a twelve inch by twelve inch square, um, and it and then it has so you know it, when you when you're flicking through a record in a record and a record store in a vinyl store, it'll leap out at you, <laughs> right? Because it's yeah. a big lavish artwork, especially the gatefolds as well. I love gatefolds um, mm. on vinyl records. So I mean that's what they were designed for. So. You know, they obviously down on when you, when you reduce it to CD size, um, they still jumped out of you, which was quite important. You know, like a lot of album sleeves later on when they were reissued on, on CD, the, you know, the artwork like lost something because it was reduced. And um, while I while I like the uh, initially, I like the high fidelity of CD um, masters in, in the beginning. Um, well, I did enjoy that. Um, on certain types of music and high production music and classical music, especially mm -hmm. um, the artwork reduction was a bit of a, you know, I didn't like that really. Yeah. I like vinyl sized artwork on my records. Cause I, you know, when I'm playing them, I like to look at it, you know, and I like to read, I like to read the sleeve notes while I'm listening to an album. So yeah, I like something to look at, you know, those little CD booklets are shite. You can't see them. Yeah. yeah. Also, when it came to like doing things like t-shirts and merch, like back in the day, like how did you go about that? Yeah, we couldn't sell any. Be like, uh, I remember my, my favorite example of this is a story that starts at the York Rock Festival in 1984. And we were playing alongside Spear of Destiny and the Echo, Echo and the Bunnymen, nice. um, the, the, uh, the Sisters of Mercy. And who else? Bunny Men, Spear, Sisters, or Redskins. I think Redskins played as well. And um, so we were asked to produce a T-shirt for the event. So we, um, we were all sitting around the table, scratching our heads, thinking, well, what can we do? And uh, our driver, Tony, the driver at the time, he, uh, he got fed up sitting around waiting. So he just grabbed some... Um, fluorescent colored pencils um off the table that were lying around and a piece of paper 
and he just drew this crazy hippie face <laughs> um, that was obviously off its tits. You know, the, the hippie's off his tits. He's like, he's like obviously chipping up. He's on acid or something. He's got fucking flowers coming out of his head and he's got a stripy tie for a punk on it and in his crazy eyes. It's all done in fluorescent green and purple and whatnot. And and he says, and then he threw it down and went, there's your fucking T-shirt, right? And we all, <laughs> we all looked at each other. We all looked at each other somewhat bemused. And I picked it up and I, I'm looking at it and I went, actually, I, I really like it. <laughs> That's really cool. Reggie goes, Reg goes, yeah, I like it as well. And Dave goes, yeah, I like it. So he said, right, well, that's it. So we sent that off to uh, to the guys who was asked, you know, to the shirt maker th- person. We said, that's the chameleon shirt. We wrote chameleons in uh, very childish handwriting along the bottom of it, just so that it would be in context. It's a chameleon shirt. So we wrote chameleons <laughs> and really childish <laughs> writing on it. And we sent it uh, and we didn't hear anything back. So we were like, oh, I wonder, on the day we were actually at the festival, we were like, well, I wonder if they did our shirt. So we all go looking. So we went to the um, merchandise pit, which was just like one long kind of row of T-shirt stalls either side. You know, the, there's like a big green pathway and either side were all these T-shirt stalls where all these bands had sell their stuff. And we were looking at all the stalls and every single um shirt on every stall was black right <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we found the we found the stall for the guy that had asked us to do the shirt and we said we can't see our shirts he said no he says i can't sell them and we're like why not and he says well they're not black <laughs> no one's gonna no one will buy them because they're all by this time i suppose you could say it was the birth of the goth yeah movie. And uh, so everyone was making these dark black kind of moody shirts and theirs was ours with this massive explosion of colour um, that the guy was hiding in a bag underneath the stall because he didn't. He was so embarrassed. He was too embarrassed to take them out of the bag. So we just, we just said, well, can we have them then if you're not going to sell them? And he said, yeah, yeah, take them. And we took them and we gave them all away. Um, or so we thought and then about some years later after the acid house scene had started up and all that started seeing people wearing them around town i remember hearing this story yeah. <laughs> and i tracked oh, it down to a i tracked it down to a marketplace in manchester called Affleck's palace mm-hmm. and i walked in the ground floor there's a t-shirt seller you know bootleg shirts mainly i have to say and um i walked in there and he had them he had them up on the wall and he got when he saw me, he was horrified. He's like, "Oh no, Aya. I said, "What? What are you doing?" And he said, oh, "I bought him off this t-shirt bloke who did, he didn't didn't know what he didn't know what he wanted to do with. He didn't know what to do with him. So I I bought him. He says, and they're selling like hotcakes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! So like, I was kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to need some off you anyway because I had a load of friends with me from Germany that were staying at my house. Some friends had come over from Germany and stayed in my house and they'd taken them to Manchester for a day out, you know, to show them around. So I'm going to need some for my friends. And he just gave me a load of free shirts for my friends. So I just said, right, that's fine then. But um, one of those guys actually, because I, I, I remember how I found out was I was walking through town and I saw a guy and um, he had one on. And um, 
I stopped him and I just said, where did you get your chameleon shirt? And he goes, my what? <laughs> I said, where did you get your chameleon shirt? He says, what's a chameleon shirt? I said, the fucking shirt that you're wearing. <laughs> he goes, oh, oh, chame- oh, chameleons. What? Oh, is it a band? I didn't know. So I just saw it in Affleck's and I really liked it. It's so like a weird moment of looking in a mirror. It's like, that's me. That's my shirt. <laughs> I, was, you know, just, I was completely shocked because I hadn't seen it in, this was like years later. It's like five years later or something. When Acid House started, and um, so you know, we were that was chameleons. We were like ahead of our time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, um, at that time, I read up about like, and this might have been like early on, but like the feel of alienation um, in communities due to like the manufacturing and like just the industrial like era at that time yeah yeah well there was a manchester as well because i mean that would been that was the image that Thatcher were founded on and they were like you know the main players in manchester at that time so mm-hmm. you had a lot of that you know you had industrial designers doing nightclubs and things like that yeah. so yeah and it was interesting i mean i like you know i kind of like oh you know i i as just as somebody as a I wasn't part of that scene in any way, but I could appreciate it as being something different. You know, mm-hmm. we were we had nothing to do with it. Really. We didn't we didn't we didn't relate to all of that. Oh, um, we were very untypical. Um, they didn't really know who we were in the beginning. Though they were quite shocked. We 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 played the hacienda um, on a local band's night and got like a thousand people, <laughs> and they were like scratching their heads, going like, "The fuck is this lot?" You know, they didn't really know. Who, <laughs> We didn't really know who we were or anything. Um, because, you know, we came from a different, um, you know, we came from a kind of different uh, base. Like mm-hmm. our audiences didn't really have a lot of money, right? So they couldn't afford to go to places like the Hacienda and and, and all these swanky, trendy um, bars and things that were start springing up around the scene. They, you know, they were like, these were the kind of guys that would buy a quarter ounce of hash instead of putting it in the gas meter or, you know, <laughs> I didn't have any money. They'd rather, you'd rather smoke, they'd rather spend it on hash than, than on lighting, you know, yeah. and put it in the electric meter or the gas meter. I'd rather spend it on hash than have the gas fire on. So those were the kinds of people that got into our music with the, with the disenfranchised kind of poorer people. It's like really DIY. Yeah, very, very much so. It was very, you know, yeah. I mean, it was a very, we, we were very, people kept saying, I mean, that was the thing that confused us because, like, we have such a huge, we had such a huge sound. We still have such a huge sound. Yeah. But we had a huge sound then, and people would say, oh, you should be on, you should be playing stadiums. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, well, you know, we we haven't really, you know, they'd lump us in with bands like U2 and Simple Minds, and, and we're like, well, actually, we've got more in common with the fall than we have with uh, you two. But yeah, whatever. And we'd be handing out fanzines. We'd be handing out free fanzines at our gigs and things like that. You know, oh, just man, that's it, so cool. Just because it was fun to do, it was just fun to do it. We were like, they didn't really cost anything. They were like, it's all photocopied. So like, we just photocopied it on five different colored, five different colors of A4 paper, and we'd staple it together and we'd just give it out at gigs. We, they were like, we, the band would do all the pages, 
you know, each band, each member of the band would do one or two pages and we used to just distribute it at shows and things like that. And, you know, our contemporaries would scratch their fucking heads going, what are they doing? You know, <laughs> what is, you know, is, they weren't, they were more into the kind of straight rock, rock star deal. You yeah. Know, and we were, we were very anti that really. Mm-hmm. And I can say we had more in common with the fall. We had more in common with Mark Smith than we had with Bono. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Like just the, how far, like within time, like just the do it yourself scene has gone. Um, like yeah. it has like a different style of doing it. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, but you know, the technology, you've got the technology now to do a lot of really cool things. DIY. Yeah. You know, you've got the technology to make your own fucking records. I mean, they, you, you know, a lot of people are making records that sound absolutely phenomenal in their fucking bedrooms. So, I mean, you know, we didn't have that then, you know, you can, or you can put together, you can put together a, a printed like fanzine now and it'll look like it's come off a proper printing press, you know, I mean, <laughs> technology you've got, you've, well, not that anybody does that now. It's all online and everything's all web, web-based, but you know, you, the, the technology now to do a lot of those things um, is far more accessible it's made things more accessible, but it's also made it harder for you to find your audience. So, um, mm-hmm. about that. and there's That's even cool. like a, a term that has been coined in the past few years here. Um, they will call it bedroom artists. Yeah. You have these like really young kids, like ages, like 14 to 18 and up, yeah. like creating all of this stuff. Just like, yeah, I'm just going to yeah. start this new project and see where it goes. And it's like, wow. I, yeah, but I mean, just for like distribution, you know, like you can do, you can, you got artists now that will use an iPad and a pencil, do an amazing piece of work, and within like minutes of completing it, it's out there. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. You know, and I love, I, I think that's great, actually. You know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's different, you know, it has a different quality to it, I suppose you could yeah. say. Um, but it's just different, not not any, not lesser or, or more, just just different. It's just an alternative, yeah. Thing that's come with the with the evolution of the technology. So that's mm-hmm. very, you know, that's that's good. Yeah. yeah. Now, also, um, when it came to like writing for, what does anything mean? What were your influences at the time? Like, for example, when you wrote Perfume Garden, what were what same as they always were? I mean, we were. So I was, we're all different influences anyway. We all brought different things to the table mm-hmm. um, in terms of where we were coming from musically. I think I had probably the most in common with Reg. Um, Dave, um, he, he, his influences were a little bit more American folky. Okay, that's cool. You know, like Dave's, Dave was very into uh, Crosby Stills and, and, um, Johnny Mitchell and uh, Neil Young and that kind of, because he had an older brother that was buying those records. So, you know, he got exposed to those records at a very impressionable age. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that we had in common was David Bowie. You know, we both had a great love of David Bowie. In fact, I remember Dave um, uh, loaning me his entire collection of Bowie singles once for quite a while um, before I, he asked me, you know, before I gave them back. So hey, I I wasn't because I was I was, I was a, I, my my band at the time was T Rex. I was a big T. I was a huge T Rex fan, 
uh, T-Rex and Sparks were the biggest bands for me that uh, when I was growing up. Um, yeah, yeah, there's that like Sparks documentary that just released. Uh, Sparks are just absolutely phenomenal. The the yeah. they are the most original pop act. I say act because really it's the two of them with whoever they work with. So whoever they choose to work with, you know, but it's really Russell and Ron Mayo. Um, and those two, and uh, it's just a combination of, uh, well, Ron Mayle is a genius. I mean, musically, he's, he's a, he is a prodigy. He is a genius. I don't, I don't, I use that word. I don't use that word lightly. It's not many people that I would apply that to, but Ron yeah. Mayle is certainly definitely one of them. And um, that's also and what, such a phenomenal, it's like a vocal gymnast. It's like a vocal gym. I wouldn't say he was a singer, Russell Mayle. I'd say he's a vocal gymnast. I mean, it's just incredible. The voice of that man is unbelievable. Um, and those two combined were, I mean, I used to follow the tour around when I was 13, 14, telling my mother that I was staying at a friend's house. And I was actually thinking, <laughs> hitchhiking, I was hitchhiking around the Northwest watching Sparks. So, it's so cool. Yeah. yeah like, that was also like around the time, like a lot of people were like, getting more into like dance music and stuff too. And like, well, know. they were, yeah, they were like, they really made that jump early and it was extremely innovative. Um, but they were working with the, you know, it was a, I mean, it's, you, you got, you got, you know, yeah, you, they, they, they worked with Plank, didn't they? And people like, him, uh, you know, they, they've worked with some really interesting producers. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, beat the clock was definitely, uh, you know, innovative of its time. They've always kind of pushed the envelope. Know, they've always one of the reasons why I respect Spark so much is because they've always continued to do that. Mm. You know, I mean, yeah. I see like influence from them in like bands like Orange Juice as well. Like, I hear it. Yeah, I mean, if you, you know, you hear it. Um, I hear it. All, I hear their, their influence a lot. Yeah, I, I still do. You know, still hear it. Um, so for me, for me, it was so it was T Rex and Sparks, and then to you know, and then Bowie, Alice Cooper as well was a huge hit. The original, the original Alice Cooper band, um, you know, that made um, uh, Killer and Skills Out and uh, Billion Dollar Babies and Muscle of Love. That band, um, just absolutely fantastic. Love that band, but we couldn't see them here because he was banned here. He, really? they banned, yeah, they banned him for a long time. They banned him. He made a top of the pops appearance and blew blew our minds. And then the England decided that uh, he was too unpalatable. And, uh, <laughs> they oh, banned man. him. So I was really, really gutted. And that's, and I still love him. I still. I just I just uh, got a notification the other day that he's going out um, playing again with one of the Kiss guitar players with um, I think Axel Foley. So uh, it's playing with him on a tour, but I really love him. And I, when I was in Florida, I spent quite a while in Florida some years ago. Um, I was listening to his radio show every Sunday night with Alice Cooper. It was one of the things that I look forward to. Uh, I just get, go in the car and drive around aimlessly just so I could listen to the radio in the car. <laughs> and I'd listen to Alice Cooper in the car. And then when his show was over, I'd go home, pat the car. It was really cool. That's cool. Now, that time when you were in Florida, was that around the same time that you were working with Softkill here in the States? Um, no. I think I'd already left Florida by that time. Okay. 
Now, when you uh, it's hard for me to remember now uh, exactly the because I've had quite a hectic last de- uh, decade, so it's been it's hard harder for me to keep things straight this last ten years. But um, no, yes, yes, I was. I, I, yes, sorry, yeah, where I was touring with Softkill, I was still in Florida. That's right, I remember nice. that. That was like um, you did. You guys did like a Halloween show, I believe, and. I'm not sure if that was around the same time that you um, you worked on Choke with them. Matter of fact, I oh, that was that was in 2019, the Halloween show we did. Okay, cool. We all, you mean when we all when we all um, got painted for Halloween? Nice. Where was that at? Um, it's out in Arizona. Nice. We were yeah, I, in Arizona. we actually just had Tobias on the podcast recently. I got to talk with him a little bit and like just. I, I I hear you guys' influence within their music a lot too. And it's just so cool that you got to like work on that album. Um, there's so many bands that like. They're a great like, band and a great bunch of people um, as well. Um, yeah. well. I mean, we had, we just seem to have like a lot of uh, things thrown out on those two tours that I did with them. They were very um, eventful. Um, in terms of uh, logistics and things like that, but um, <laughs> like I had a guitar player go AWOL on uh, after the first date, and I had to, I had to uh, start inviting guitar players on stage to play with me because I had a guitar player missing. Um, oh he no! Got, he got sick and uh, yeah, and then just like went home <laughs> or wherever. I don't exactly know. I'm not exactly sure to this day what happened, but uh, he got sick and he disappeared and. Um, I had the entire tour and uh, no guitar player. So I had to do the show with uh, like three guitar players coming on and off the stage, oh, which man. was uh, really good actually in the end. Uh, it was, it was at the time it was terrifying because I didn't think I would get, I didn't think it would be possible to do it. But um, I had three guitarists that learned, I think three or four songs each and they'd alternate and they'd alternate during the show and um we pulled it off <laughs> i think i think we pulled it off my memory says we pulled it off so, we, <laughs> so that's what i'm going to put my trust in that we did pull it off um and then another time um i the similar thing happened but what i got i was a lot luckier was was i had my a regular guitar player that i worked with a lot um his mother died out of the blue about three shows in to the tour so um he was able to stay for most of the tour but he he, he had to fly back and miss the the last two shows of the tour which were both sellout shows one was in philadelphia quite a big show for the tour and the other one was um in brooklyn and um they absolutely categorically couldn't be couldn't be cancelled so um um a band called the Curtain Society out of Boston has a guitar player called Roger Lavelle. And I gave him a call and he came out and he learned the set in a day and uh, played those last two shows with us. So um, huge kudos to Roger for doing that. It took a lot of balls um, and he did it and he did it great. And uh, he did it his own way, entirely his own way. And it was really fantastic. And the lads appreciated him very much so that works out okay but but it's just unluck so we got bad luck on the two soft kill tours that's my point but nevertheless we dealt with we dealt with them 
and uh, they dealt with them like troopers, the guys. And um, we had a good time, but I seem to recall it, we had a really fine time. Um, yes. And they were a great, they were a good band, Soft Kill. They were a great band. Mm. Yeah. Was yeah. that around the same time that you recorded with KEXP as well? Uh, I did. I've done a couple of things for KEXP. I've done a few things, um, both with the original Chameleons and um, by myself. Um, so I remember the last time I think I did with them, I think my voice had gone, and uh, the night before <laughs> in Seattle, and um, I just about had enough, I think, to do the the the, the show, which was a special performance for all of the patrons and sponsors of this station um and that's a great station i think that's probably um along with strange rays radio which is also an american sh uh, radio station mm -hmm. they're they're my favorite kea kexp are my favorite radio station that i've that i've encountered yeah. um, while doing this i really like the guys up there i love the station i love the ethos um it was a great place it was a great uh, privilege. It's always a privilege to go there and do things for them in Seattle. Yeah, and I can't even remember what stage that is. I've seen a couple people play it before as well. It's a beautiful theater. Yeah, it was, a, it was yeah. a theater in downtown Seattle. I think it was a really gorgeous place. Yeah, I think. Um, but it was that the audience for that were all people who um, financially contribute to keep the station going. That's mm -hmm. how they operated, and um, so it was really nice to be to do that and. We were very warmly received, I have to say. You know, it was very, it went down very well, even though I only had partially my voice. Mm -hmm. uh, I got through it. Now, I've got a couple more questions. So for Strange Times, when I go and listen to that era, um, I'll listen to songs like Soul in Isolation. And then I'll also listen to like Swamp Thing, and mm. everyone loves Swamp Thing. Yeah, it's a big song for us. That yeah. yeah, that one is like one of your huge mainstays for like when it comes to popularity. A lot of people tend to go for that one. Yeah, my favorite song will always be "Fan in the Bellows." Okay, <laughs> um, thing. "Fan in the Bellows" and also like "Perfume Garden." Those will always be my favorite because they feel like the most romantic. Okay. Just like very in tune to um everything. But like when it came to like strange times, what was your influence within writing that album? Um from the from from lyrically, uh, the themes for it um were all about uh came from um from school, from my school experiences, my last few years of school and the people that I knew that had gone into the world, had gone on, gone into the world and disappeared into, you know, what, you know, it's really strange. You're like, you have this kind of um, very close ecosystem uh, going on um, for a number of years. And then suddenly you leave and you, you dispersed and um, some you never see again, you know, and having seen them every day for years, they disappear. And um, and then you, oh you might bump into them, and I started uh, just before I started writing the themes for that record, I started bumping into some of these guys again in the street and stuff, and uh, in a bar or lying in the gutter um, of a of a road or something, you know. Uh, all of a sudden, it, it was happening. 
where I was meeting all these kind of people in all these very weird, diverse circumstances. And they they formed the themes for that record, really. Interesting. That's cool. Mad Jack, uh, for sure, did. Mm-hmm. Um, Caution, which was, you know, about some of the ones that had kind of slipped into um, heroin and taking heroin and stuff like that. Um, and then you had the... Um, the ones that married very young and bought, a, bought got a mortgage and bought a house and were living in this little box. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I know it sounds, I mean, it really, uh, I got into a lot of trouble actually, uh, like for a song like childhood, for example, which is what that's talking about, mm-hmm. you know, kind of becoming your parents before you've even lived yeah. is, is what I was trying to get at. You know, you've turned into your parents before you've actually experienced anything of the yeah. world and um i got into a lot of trouble you know because like hereford way it says my life is a milbury's home on hereford way and milbury's was a company that built those really cheap houses they were called milbury homes and they were mm-hmm. they were you know plasterboard and fucking plastered and breeze block um sold but you know but they they made houses and affordable for people you see for young people and uh They'd buy these and they'd get married at a very early age before they even really knew anything about life or anything. <laughs> and um, I got into so much trouble because Hereford Way, Milbury's homes, um, and where it was a real thing, and so was Hereford Way. And I had people coming up to me in the pub saying, "I fucking live in Hereford Way." <laughs> oh, I'm like, dear, uh, do you like it? <laughs> yeah. And they're going, "No, it's shit." <laughs> so, well, there you go. <laughs> there you go there you go but i was getting into a lot of trouble because people thought i was having a go at it and i wasn't i wasn't having a go at it i wasn't putting it down um even though it sounds like that maybe it comes across that way it was just an observation you know that that is Mm. how my life could have gone and and it didn't because i wouldn't let it but um it could very easily have been my life you know it was the life of some i have friends and that was their life and and uh you know, um, good luck with it. It's not what I wanted, you know. And so um, it alienated me. And that's when I, you know, that's why Soul and Isolation came out of it because I felt so alienated from, uh, I'm, I've got all these themes of all these, from from, from this environment that um, I, I grew up in and always kind of felt alienated, but I felt more alienated than I'd ever felt because I had nothing in common with any of it. So that's how that came about, really. So yeah, all those that was a, all of those things were the themes in Strange Times. Nice, that's really yeah. cool. And that was what's strange about it. What <laughs> 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 was so strange about it was that everybody just seemed to have turned into uh, Stepford people or drug addicts or whatever. So yeah, it's kind of weird. Now, yeah. also, like your time was strip. Was everything in strip originally like done around the time of 2000? Like, for example, like Nathan's face. Well, Soul and Isolation is on here too, but yeah, yeah. Well, strip was, um, it came about because, um, once we decided that we wanted to get back together and play again, mm-hmm. we were very eager to do it. And John, the drummer, wasn't able to commit for quite a while. So he said, No, it's going to be um, a couple of months before I can do it. So that kind of deflated us a little bit. And we thought, well, we don't really want to wait two months. So what can we do in the meantime? And Dave suggested that we go into some 
bars and things like that and play mm-hmm. acoustically with just the three of us. And I was kind of like, well, no, I'm not really into that because I think when the chameleons come back, it should we should all come back. It should be the impact should be the four of us, not just three of us. Yeah. So I said, but I like the acoustic idea. So I said, why don't we go into a studio and record them acoustically while we wait for John to get on board? That's something that we can do. And I said, and we haven't played together in uh, in such a long time. It'll help us a little bit rediscover our own music. So that was what we decided to do. So um, the person played, there's one track on it that's got drums on it. The only track on it that's got drums on it and Reg is playing the drums on it. It's called Indian. And uh, Reg is playing the drums on that. It's not John. John, John couldn't be there. Um, so when John joined later on, I turned, I turned Indian into Indiana and uh, we did it as a full on production. But um, I love Strip. I enjoyed making it. It was very different to anything. And I think it, it really demonstrates the core of the songs. You know, you really strip a song down like that to its core and still have a great song that's really saying something because a lot of things when you strip the production away there's not a lot left um on it you know some some records i've heard where it's all production the production is the thing, you know yeah now when it came to nathan's phase when was that originally that was kind of an early one actually that was written in okay. about 1982 when john left um the band for about six months he had some problems um you know d- dealing with reality <laughs> and uh he had a kind of a breakdown so he left for six months and that was we had um we had uh martin jackson who played with magazine oh cool yeah um, Martin nice. came in and, and played with chameleons throughout six months while john was on the mend and then john came back and Nathan's phase was written around that time because John was um, a little bit lost and uh, he was smoking uh, spliffs that were about a foot long <laughs> and uh, eating um, dehydrated, um, you know, that dehydrated meals that you pour hot water on, mm. like noodles. Now you get like a, a pot of noodles and you pour hot water on it and stir it and leave it for five minutes and then, hey, presto, it's chow mein. Right, he was eating. That's all he was eating. It was those, and uh, he was living in this crazy house. He'd taken a room in this house with these weird people, um, and there wasn't a straight wall in the whole house. The house had sub- subsidence, and it was all crooked. All the weird, all the walls, yeah. all the walls, and everything were all crooked and, and off off center. And uh, he was smoking these huge joints of Afghanistan black ash, which is very strong. <laughs> Gold seal used to come with the. It was oily and sticky, and it had a gold. Sorry about that. It had a gold um, stamp on it, and uh, he was just smoking that every day. And he's a drummer. Drummers don't do well unless you're a raster. <laughs> unless you're a raster drummer, you don't really do well on the hash like that. It's not. Yeah. So he kind of went down, and um, he ended up having the breakdown. He left for six months. Um, and Nathan's phase was kind of me sort of saying, you need to get out of this funk, mate, you know? Yeah. 
And that's always going to be like one of my favorite albums. Like the lyrics read very visually for me. Um, the streets of London are paved with lead, just as though my lungs are paved with lead. Yeah, Lebanese. We, we were spending a lot of time in London back then. We had a friend who had a, an apartment in Kensington Park Gardens, which is just around the corner from Portobello Road, which is a very cool, it was a very cool part of London. Notting Hill Gate was a very cool part of London at that time to be able to hang out in. Um, and he had an apartment there. So we just used to crash there all the time. And um, yeah, that's what we would end up, you know, we were just smoking a lot of hash and taking a lot of whiz and just like <laughs> doing what you know 20 somethings do and uh yeah. uh it you know john couldn't really you know john was having a problem hacking it you know we, we kind of like at that age you know it's really hard to know what to do in that situation for someone you know especially yeah. english people who don't really show their emotions that much uh you know they're not the most um you know the English are kind of like, well, it's changed a little bit, but by and large, you know, they're very, um, what's, how can you describe it? They're like the Japanese. They don't, they don't, they don't. Very outward, stoic. Yeah, they find outward um, expressions of, um, sorry about that, somebody's trying to call me. Um, you find, uh, outward, they find outward expressions of emotion a bit, a bit embarrassing. Mm. So I'm not like that, actually, which is why I feel alienated, which is why I say these feelings of alienation, because I'm completely the opposite. I don't, I'm not like that, you know. But yeah. um, that's why they say, the, you know, the, stiff, the British stiff upper lip, the English stiff upper lip, that's what it, that's what it means. It means, you know, um, you wrap pretty tight, you're a bit anal, and you don't like to, you know, people to see you cry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they don't like people seeing them cry mm. you know which i i think it's it's perfectly fine to have a good cry yeah yeah now i've got a few more questions and i'll let you go just say okay. i know it's very late for you there um yeah. did you ever have much time or like um end up like meeting bands like the sound and adrian borland um and adrian was a friend of mine in the end um we met through a mutual friend of ours who called Carlo Van Putten, who uh, he, he he's a he was a he was a singer he's a singer as well um, in a in a he was in a German band at the time he's actually Dutch he's from Amsterdam but he was in a German band at the time he was living in Germany and um, Carlo had a record label called Red Sun. And what Red Sun specialized in was those things that he that that were popular but but not available for one reason or another. They couldn't get him anymore, deleted records and things like that. And he went along and found Adrian, who was living alone in an apartment somewhere in Germany, I think. And um he went there to visit Adrian. And um Adrian didn't have anybody at the time putting out his records. So so Carlos said, well, I'll do it, you know, I'll do it. And they became really good friends. Um, and I knew the sound because obviously I was on Static Records at the same mm -hmm. time as the sound were. Um, but I didn't really like the band very much. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, and he was the same. Like he, he remembered me from um, Static days, but didn't really like the Chameleons very much. 
So we, but then Carlo introduced us and we became friends because he kind of liked my solo stuff better and I liked his solo stuff better. So, um, you know, because it was the sounds of, he didn't really like the sound of the chameleons and I didn't really like, um, Watch. I couldn't watch the band. I couldn't. I could. I, I heard them, and there wasn't. <laughs> I liked the songs, but I didn't. I couldn't watch the band. I couldn't actually watch them. Um, I won't say why. <laughs> I won't say why, but I couldn't. So uh, I couldn't really get into it. But when I saw Adrian on his own, I thought he was phenomenal, and uh, I heard his solo records that he did for Carlo. They were fantastic. He's a yeah. great songwriter. Great, great songwriter, and he did a version actually. I heard him um, one of the one of the recordings that um, I loved the most. He'd gone to visit Carlo, and he'd asked Carlo to set up an acoustic gig for him. So Carlo set it up in a bar in Volosaldo, and there was about only about thirty people in the room. And he taped the set, and it's absolutely fantastic. It's just Adrian on, on his own with a guitar, and um, he did a version of uh, "Love Will Tear Us Apart." It was absolutely amazing. Oh, yeah. That's nice. It's amazing. Just him on his guitar. And I didn't realize until I met him that he played he played the same way Hendrix played. He plays an upside down guitar. You know, he's a left-hander. So he didn't play a left-handed guitar, he played a right-hand guitar strung upside down. So that's why his cards sound really, really cool. You can never re- I could never replicate. I wrote yeah, he wrote a song for me to sing. He was embarrassed about it. He said, Do you think? I wrote the song that I want Matt to sing, but I don't know how to ask him. And Carlo saying, just fucking ask him, he'd be all right. Um, eventually, Carlo, he got Carlo to ask me if I'd do it for his album. And um, I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. And he wrote it. I mean, he wrote it, he completely wrote it. He wrote the melody, he wrote the words, which is like not something that I would normally do because I usually have some input. But I didn't mind, you know. I said, no, I'll do it. And uh, he wrote it, and it was a, it's a really, really, really nice song. And... Um, when I later on, when I tried to play it, I couldn't get it to sound right because I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand uh, why can't I get this to play right? And it was because he plays his guitar upside down. I didn't realize. So yeah, nice. yeah, that's really sweet. Like he's- he was great. He was a great guy. He was a very. I mean, he was an un- one of those. He's an unintentionally funny guy. You know, he, I'd laugh at things that he said because they were funny, but he wasn't trying to be funny. He was being serious. Yeah. But he had that he had that natural comedic um, thing about him where things that he'd say that were totally he'd say things totally straight that would be the most hilarious things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, imaginable. And he, he, you know, he was funny. He was a funny character. He was a funny guy. He was a lovely guy. Um, and I knew I kind of knew what his fate was going to be. I could tell when I first met him. I said to Carlo, "You got to keep your eye on this guy because." Yeah, you know, and like days. reading reading about his health was always like very concerning. It just yeah, know. I knew that I knew that he was going to jump the, from yeah, the very I mean, first from the very first weekend I spent with him. Oh. I knew I knew that this guy was going to jump if if anything happened that would disrupted his his life mm-hmm. to any serious degree. He yeah, was going to jump. What was he suffering from towards the end? Was he, was, it? He, he, he suffered? He suffered from depression. Yeah, he got um, manically depressed. He had to. They had to. Uh, they had to section him a couple of times. Yeah, I remember reading about that at one point. I think he'd attempted suicide about two or three times. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Poor guy. Yeah, he's his stuff. Uh, I was waiting. I was waiting to start a tour with him when he, the day he did it. I was in. I was. He'd asked me if I played. If I play on a White Rose Transmission tour he was doing, and uh, I agreed. And um, I was waiting in Bremen to start rehearsals when I got the phone call. Now was that after his keyboardist had passed away as well? Don't know. Okay. I don't know. So I remember he had passed too. I just kind of remember the year of it. I don't know. This was about, uh, oh, I can't even tell you what year it was. Uh, would it be, could it have been 98 or something? 90 something it was like 99. That. It was 99. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, yeah. Also, um, your time for the sun and the moon, that's that's something that's like usually very hard for me to find. I've listened to Black Swan Lane a, a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, with the sun and the moon, it was uh surprising because that actually that did quite well over there as well. And again, in the, in the colleges and stuff, they really kind of picked the lights, but we never got to play. I never got to play that stuff in America, which is a bit of a shame. Um, and that's something that I might remedy actually. I might, I might do that. I might, um, I might, I might, I might play some of that stuff over there because I've never done it. Yeah, that'd be nice. And that was something I was going to ask. Like, do you plan on like still playing once we like come out of this post-COVID age? And yeah, it was slightly to do a tour with the mission and with uh, um, the Theatre of Hate in oh, yeah. 20, 2022, March um, in uh, um, September and October of twenty twenty two. Um, but I'm trying to I'm trying to raise the money for the legal costs of getting a, a talent-based green card so that I can work there more. Nice, that'd be um, good. It's extremely expensive, so I'm going to do a, a sponsored bike uh, film run thing where I'm going to cycle the whole length of British Isles. That's really cool. And, uh, yeah, to, try to, to try to raise some money for uh, so that I can get this application together. Nice. Um, and I've got a new rec- I'm, I'm doing a new licensing deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not there yet we're still uh, working out the details but that'll be worldwide so then I'm going to make a new record me and Reg are going to make a record together um, and that'll come out um, on this through this licensing deal that I'm doing that's awesome um, we're going to start that this year uh, that's the plan anyway and just had a new book come out as well which is a collaboration with Iman Lazelle mm-hmm. at Mooching About um, if you Google mooching about in England, you should come to the store there. Okay. And uh, I've got a book book out, and she's yeah. also done a book with Tony Skinkiss of all the photographs of the chameleons from about 1981 to present day. And I've been um, meaning to buy View from a Hill for a while now. I've yeah, View from a Hill is a tricky one though because it's it's kind of there's going to be a, um, a a deluxe version of that coming out where I'm actually going to include some spoken word and um, and stuff and some photographs um, to illustrate various chapters of it. And so it's going to be a, like a version of me from hill coming out as well on mooching about. Very nice. That'll be next year. Cool. Well, yeah, I definitely look forward to it. Um, yeah. I don't want to hold you up much longer. Cause like you said, I know it's, it's pretty late over there. <laughs> uh, it's, one forty in the morning, but it's fine. Oh. 
it's fine. Uh, don't worry. Uh, you know, whatever you want, it's fine. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, the last thing though, like you mentioned with your cycling, uh, I saw one of your posts. I was like, that's really cool. And I also like noticed that you write like a Brooks saddle as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, only, I only, I only, um, I only use Brooks saddles and I only ride steel bikes. Nice. That's the most comfortable way to do it. I, I just start, um, I've always been a long-term rider, but I just started track racing recently. And oh, nice! On my regular, my like just casual bike, I ride a Brooks saddle. There's, there's no finer way to go through it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do have to, you know, it's a couple of hundred miles. Actually, I say that, you know, but I've never had a problem breaking in a Brooks saddle. I've never, it's, I've never suffered breaking in a Brooks saddle. They've, they've always been fine on me so maybe i've just got that kind of right shape ass or something i don't know but uh i've always i've never had a problem with them um but i am i only I've, i think i've only don't think i've ever had a, the sprung one i've just always used b17s so um but on a lot you know once they once they fit you they're they're, they're brilliant on long distance rides but i'm not that fit you know it's like um my pace is a slow pace you know i mean i've just got a i'm about to try for the first time i'm about to ride with a trailer because i've never done that before nice. I've, always, I've always used bags um but i'm going to actually um use a, a trailer on this ride that i'm planning that's cool how long is it um i'm not exactly sure it's about it's um it's not it's it's like the bob trailer but it's it's actually the, the Topeak one that i've got Oh, so I mean, like uh, how, how long is the ride? <laughs> oh, how long? <laughs> in the trailer. Uh, I don't, the ride is going to be 1,200 miles. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it is. But I'm, I'm going to, there's, a, you know, a lot of, I'm not going to take a, the traditional route. Mm-hmm. There's a, like, you know, there are two or three traditional kind of routes that you take when you do this ride, but I'm not taking those because the, you know, I want to actually, there are certain places I want to pass through from A to B. So um, it's going to take me a little bit longer. It's going to take me maybe about a month, but um, nice. I'm going to be stopping and um, whatnot. But, um, you know, some people, some people do it in seven days. Some people do it in 14. I'm going to take my, my time. Yeah. Um, Cause I really want to, I want to try and rediscover my own country, you know, cause um, you can do that by bike. Um, on the roads, you're on it, you know, unless you kind of know where to go and stuff, even with sat-navs and stuff like that, you're on mainly, you're on A roads and highways and that, and you don't see anything from them. You won't see the country from there because yeah. they go around and, and bypass everything. But if you take the old Roman roads and the old B roads, and the you know, you know you'll find that, the country's actually there to be found. I suppose it's the same in America, you know. Mm-hmm. You know if you if you if you take the back roads, you'll actually see it. If you take if you stick to the highways and the main main arteries, it, you you go around and bypass a lot of places. Because who want who wants all that traffic coming through their little town, right? You know. Yeah. So they they'll build highways and byways and, uh, you know. So I'd like to save my time and 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 find these find these places that are kind of like 
off the beaten track a bit. That's good. And like, did the pandemic allow you to like ride a lot more? No, they closed us down. In fact, um, I did go for a, when I did ride here. Um, I'd get stopped by the police. <laughs> the, they'd say, "Where do you live?" And I'd say, "Well, I live over there." And they say, "Well, you know, really, we don't want you cycling more than three miles away from your front door." Yeah. And well, what's the fucking difference if I cycle? I'm cycling still on the bike. I'm not around anybody. I'm not, you know, mm. I'm not, I'm, I'm nowhere near another person. I'm on a bike. I'm on a, <laughs> it's like if I ride three miles or five miles, what's the difference? You know, it's like, uh, well, the difference is there's a, an exclusion zone, lockdown, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So uh, it kind of took all, it took all the joy out of it. So, um, and you get a bit fed up, you know, like I just do this, the, the regular places that I, that I could ride without being hassled by the police. Mm -hmm. But after um, a week or two, you just get bored with that, you know. Yeah. So uh, here, when it came to like the pandemic, knocking things down, like cycling was my number one go to. It was the one thing I could do yeah. to like, escape that like anxiety or. Yeah. Whatever was going on, was go for a ride. Yeah, they don't seem to get that here, though. They don't, like, you know, Scandinavia is an amazing place because the Scandinavians totally get it, you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 you know, camping out under the stars um, mm -hmm. is really actually good for the soul. It's good for your society. It's good for the people of your culture. It's a good thing to let them give them the opportunity to do that without a lot of stress. Um, in this country, they don't get that at all. They don't understand yeah. that. They don't understand why anybody would want to go out under the stars on the canvas and you know eat out of a tin and like just they don't they don't get it why would you do that when you've got a house in a nice kitchen and you know they're, yeah. they're fucking retards so they, they try and outlaw it as much as they can um you know it's actually you know england not scotland scotland is different no you know we have to remember that that the uk is actually um you know three countries and four if you count Northern Ireland, but Northern Ireland count themselves as, you know, they don't, I don't know what the, what the, exactly that is, but, but, you know, Wales is a different country. Scotland is a different country. England is a different country. I'm talking primarily about England. Yeah. Scotland, you can, um, although, you know, they're, they're getting in, they're getting so many people uh, abusing it. You know, that's the problem really is that, um, people do dumb things like light fires where they shouldn't and leave shit around. And then it becomes, makes it harder for all of us that want to go do a bit of wild camping to do it because it's some, a few people are spoiling it, you know, and even oh, yeah. we definitely, we had that last year. Yeah. We had our um, California fires. I was out West. Well, on a exactly. Yeah. exactly. That's, that's the extreme of it is that, you know, some duck, some dickhead goes out and, you know, mismanages a flame. And the mm -hmm. next thing, thousands and thousands and thousands of acres have gone. Yeah, because so, I was on a trip in Yosemite. I was out riding, and that's a beautiful place. You could you could feel all of the ash still in the air. Yeah, such it was a like very air. hard to breathe. It was the hardest I've ever had. It was worse than like riding with a face mask on. This is horrific. That's horrific just because by nature of, I mean, I've been through Yosemite and I went through Yosemite around 2003 and it was just absolutely glorious. Mm -hmm. So beautiful. So it really upsets me to hear that. Yeah, a lot of stuff was like dried up too, so that kind of sucked. Yeah, man. 
Well, cool. I appreciate you coming on. Um, like that, this is like a dream to like sit and talk with you. Like, there's very kind. Thank you. It's uh, I've enjoyed chatting with you. No problem. Um, but yeah, we should have this episode up sometime soon. And I have a lot of friends that I will send the chameleons to all of my friends and be like, "This is my favorite band. You've got to listen to them." Good man. It's like, yeah, like you guys in the sound of like when it comes to influence, there's nothing like it. I've picked up um, recently like this little like kind of like novelty items, post-punk postcards. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. And like they had you guys on there, too. I was like, oh, wow. I'm going to save this to give to a good friend. Well, send me your address so that I can send you postcards. Okay. <laughs> cool. Definitely. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, all right. Once again, thank you so much um, for You're joining welcome. us tonight. You're welcome. Right. My pleasure, mate. My pleasure. I hope you have a great week, and I'll catch up with you next time. Yeah, man. Stay, stay in tune, yeah? Stay in tune. <laughs>